Well, welcome to Hill Community Church. Thank you so much for being here today. We're starting a brand new message series that we're calling Rediscovering Jesus. And um, what we're doing is we're doing just that over the course of these 11 weeks. I don't think we've ever done an 11-week series. This is awfully ambitious of us. But over these 11 weeks, we're going to talk about Jesus. Now, you've heard some stuff about Jesus before. If you've grown up in kind of a Christian setting or a church setting, you've heard a whole lot about Jesus. You've heard some stories. But here's what we Christians do. We Christians love to take what the Bible says about Jesus. We take these stories, we take these encounters, we take the conversations that Jesus had with other people, and then we clean them up a little bit, we kind of sand down the rough edges, we make them more palatable, and then we present them to Sunday schools and the worship services and things like that, okay? And so that's just something that we do. We make these, these stories a little bit easier to handle before we tell them in a church setting. That's what we do. We sanitize them. And so this series is all about desanitizing them. Is that a word? We're going we're gonna to regritify them, okay? We're going to go back to... The, I just made that term up, regritify. We're going to regritify these stories. We're going to go back to what Jesus actually said, back to what Jesus actually did, taking a look at what he accomplished in this world during his ministry. And so that's what this series is all about. Now, one of the th- things that you'll see over the course of this 11-week series leading all the way up to Easter is that Jesus, and this is it. I mean, this is the main point of this series. I'm going to give it away in week one. There you go. Jesus came to bring us something radically different. Jesus came to bring us something radically new. Jesus came to bring a very, very big change into this world, a change in the way that we can approach God, a change in the way that we think about God. And there are three things that Jesus specifically came to bring, three new things. Jesus came to bring a new covenant. We'll talk more about what covenant means. Covenant is basically like a deal or an agreement or an arrangement. Jesus came to bring a new covenant. Jesus came into this world to bring a new commandment. We'll talk about that. what that is as the series goes on. And he also came to bring a new movement, a new covenant, a new commandment, and a new movement. That's what Jesus came to bring. Now, change, all this change, change can be a good thing. Isn't that an expression? Change is good. I used to see that on shirts. Is that still a thing? It's probably not still a thing. Anyway, that was a long time ago. Change can be good, but here's the reality. Even good change, even positive changes can be very difficult to go through, can't they? I mean, think about that. We've all been there, right? You're going through a situation where you're moving out of an apartment into a house, and it's a bigger situation, and you're happy about that, but it's such a hassle. It's a good thing. But the amount of time it takes and the money it takes, these changes, even good changes can be difficult to deal with. Or you get a new job, right? You got a new job, and it's a better job, and you're working with great people, and you're making more money and all that kind of stuff. But just to go through that transition period can be difficult, right? Now, sometimes as a pastor, I get to work with couples and do some premarital counseling, and we kind of talk through the process of what marriage is going to be like and all that. And so one of the things that we often talk about and we bring up in that setting is what it's going to be like, this change, and how difficult it might be for your families and for parents. Parents, have you been through that? If you've got a child that's all grown up and has gotten married, that's a wonderful thing. Parents, isn't that what you want for your kids? You want them to grow up and let that little baby bird spread their wings and fly into adulthood, right? Isn't that what you want? But that change can be difficult, right? And so I talk through that with, with couples and just, like, okay, your parents have to have some reasonable expectations because you can't do all the holidays together and they just got to get on board. It's a wonderful change, but it can be difficult. Even positive changes, even wonderful changes can be very difficult to accept and embrace. 
the kind of change that Jesus brought into this world was so big, was so radical, it was totally tubular, man. It was so dramatic that God, in His infinite wisdom, said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send somebody ahead of Jesus to prepare the way for what Jesus is going to bring. That's how big this transition was. I got to send somebody, I got to send like an opening act out there to warm up the crowd for what Jesus is about to bring to the people. And that's exactly what God did. And that opening act, that man's name was John. We call him John the Baptist or we call him John the Baptizer. So we're going to talk about John the Baptist today a little bit and his work and how significant he was in preparing the way for Jesus. But there's some things we need to know about the world that Jesus was born into and the world that John the Baptist worked in and the people that John the Baptist ministered to. Now those of you, so let me set the stage a little bit here, those of you who are doing the chronological Bible reading, you're reading about Moses right now, and you're right in the middle of learning about the laws, and of course, as Sean mentioned, we're going to get to Leviticus this week and all that, and so we're reading about how God gave laws to his people a long time ago, back in the days of Moses. And so back in the days of Moses, when Israel was established as a nation, it was a true theocracy. There was no separation between here are the laws of God and here are the laws of your government. It was all one thing. God was their leader, a true theocracy. We don't know what that's like, right? Those of us who follow Jesus, we have kind of have like one set of rules that Jesus gave us to live by, and then we've got the laws of the land, right? There's a division there. There's a separation there. But back in the days of Moses, when the nation of Israel was established, no division. God's law, law of the land, same law. And so that's how they started out. And as we're reading through the Old Testament, here's what we see. The Old Testament, most of the Old Testament is the story of God and his relationship with the nation of Israel. It is a tough relationship. It's a dysfunctional relationship at a lot of points because Israel keeps trying to stray away from God. They keep trying to worship other gods. And guess what happens when they worship other gods? Trouble befalls them. They say, God, we don't want you. And God says, are you sure you don't want me? They say, yeah, we don't want you. And then they, so they suffer the consequences of being separated from their God. And then they go running back to God. God, we're sorry. We messed up. And God says, I forgive you. I want to restore you. And the back and forth, back and forth, that's how it goes. Now, eventually, the Israelites, the nation is divided into two. It's a long story. It's complicated. We're reading about it. Read your Bible. It's all in there. Read your Old Testament. It's there. And so what happens is basically go back and forth. The whole nation gets divided. They become exiled. They get taken over by the, it's the Babylonians and then by the Persians and then by the Greeks and then by the Romans, okay? And so throughout all this time, they lose something. As they become enslaved or, or oppressed by other nations, as they have other nations rule over them, now they've got two sets of laws, right? Now they've got the law that God gave them, but then they have the law of their new government. Whoever happened to be in charge at the time, the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. And so it was a tough situation to live with. We've got the laws of God, and then we've got the law of the land. And what happened when those things didn't quite, weren't quite compatible? It was a very difficult situation. And so this was the world that John the Baptist was brought into, was born into, a world where the Israelites were being ruled by the Romans. Now, the Romans, can we talk about the Romans for a little bit? The Romans had a reputation for being a ruthless people, a ruthless military force, and it's a reputation that they earned. And yet the Romans, this is really wild, the Romans gave the Israelites, known as the Jews at this time, gave the Jews special consideration. And they said to the Jews, and this is, this is significant, they said to the Jews, okay, listen, you guys can keep your God, you guys can keep your laws, you guys can even keep your little religious government that you have, which was called the Sanhedrin, made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. You can keep that. You can keep your sacrifices. You can keep your worship. 
You can keep your priests and your scribes, and you can keep all that as long as you don't cause any trouble for Rome. As long as you don't rock the boat, you can keep it all. And so that's the deal. That's the negotiation that Rome made with the Jews at that time. And so what had happened is that, and this to kind of paraphrase this whole thing, Rome had corrupted the religious system of that day. Because you had to play ball with Rome in order to keep your position as a Pharisee or a Sadducee. And if you wanted to be a priest or a scribe, you had to play ball with Rome. You had to keep the people in line. You could not rock the boat. And so Rome had corrupted the religious system. And as I said, you had a couple different things going on. You had their little religious government, the Sanhedrin, made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. You had the worship system, the temple worship, the sacrificial system run by the priests and the scribes, and they could keep all that as long as everybody played nice. Now, decades, just to give you a little glimpse into the future, decades after John the Baptist, decades after Jesus and the crucifixion and the resurrection, Rome would say enough is enough and would come down and bring full military force on the Jews and would destroy the temple. But we're not there yet. John was born to this world, and so at this time, you had these Jews, you had the Israelites, you had the Hebrews, it's all the same people, you had them there, and they were trying to make sense out of what was going on. Now, at this point in history, nobody's heard from God officially. Nobody's heard from God in 400 years, over 400 years since anybody's heard from God. 400 years, nothing written in the Bible. 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Did I say 400 years? 400 years. Do you realize how long that is? How long has the United States of America been a nation? Anybody know? (laughs) Right? 200, what? Less than 250 years, right? Goodness gracious. For longer than we've been a nation, they went without hearing from God. And so during that time, the Jews, they had their stories, they had the scrolls, they had the law, they had the books of Moses, they had the books of prophecy, they had the books of wisdom, they had these stories from grandpa and great-grandpa that would be passed down from generation to generation. They had their faith system, but there were different ways that people were responding to the situation they were living in. You have people, and this is, listen, let me just say this right now, okay? I'm going to give away another secret about this whole series. Here's what we're going to see. There are so many strange and direct parallels between the world that John the Baptist was born into, the world Jesus was born into, and our world. And when I say our world, I'm not talking about modern-day America. I'm talking about Delco. I'm talking about right here, right here. So many strange parallels. And so here's what you had back then. You had people, Jews, who maintained a devotion to their religion, They maintained a devotion to the religion, and they kind of turned a blind eye to maybe, okay, maybe it's a little bit corrupt, and maybe Rome has had their influence on our system, but they kind of turned a blind eye to all that kind of stuff, and they just said, whatever the priest says to do, we're going to do, and whatever the scribe teaches, we're going to believe, and whatever the Pharisees and Sadducees say must be the law, we're just going to go along with that. We're going to keep faith in our religious system. And so they did it. They turned a blind eye to the corruption. They kind of looked past how things weren't being observed the way that God would want. And they just were devoted to their religious structure. And so they went to the temple when they were supposed to. And they observed the holidays that they were supposed to. And they brought forth the animal sacrifices that they were supposed to do. And they had absolute faith in the religious system. And then you had other people who weren't quite like that. Before we get there, let's back up a little bit. Don't we have people like that 
in our culture right now? Just have this blind faith. And this thing about blind faith, sometimes Christians feel like we're supposed to, we're just supposed to have blind, I'm not supposed to, I don't think, I don't think so. I think our faith is an informed faith. We're allowed, did you know this, Christians? Especially, do I have any teenagers in the room? Did you know that you're allowed to ask questions? You're even allowed, don't tell anybody I said this, you're even allowed to have doubts. But when you have those doubts, seek answers. You're allowed to do that. You're not asked to have blind faith. Do research. Put some thought into it. You're allowed to do this. But we have people in our culture that have maintained a devotion to a religious system. And they just do it because this is just what we do. We show up at this place on Sunday mornings because that's what the priest or the pastor tells us to do. And we sit down when we're supposed to, and we stand up when we're supposed to. And listen, I'm not picking on Catholics. Does it sound like I'm picking on Catholics? I'm not picking on Catholics because Protestants, we all do it. These outward things. There's people that are devoted to religious structure. People like that, right here, right now. We could leave this building and go visit them if we wanted to. They're out there. You know people like this. Maybe you've got a grandma like this, or a mom, or a dad, or somebody just devoted to a religious structure, which is different from being devoted to God. See what I'm saying? Different from being devoted to God. And so you have people like back there. You also have people who weren't really devoted to their religious structure, but just going through the motions, right? And so the mom and dad would say, okay, kids, it's time for us to go to Jerusalem because we have to offer some sacrifice. And the kids would say, why are we doing this? And the dad would say, I don't know. We just do it. Let's just do it. Is this really accomplishing anything? Is God really forgiving our sins? I don't know. It's just what our people do. It's a cultural thing. Do we really believe in any of this? Not really, but we're just doing it because it's what Jews do, and we're Jews. Guess what? That's what we do. People going through the motions. Does that sound familiar? Do you know anybody like that? Have you gone to those weddings <laughs> where the couple, they don't believe in God. They don't believe, well, we got to go to this church because grandpa said to go to this church and we got to go lie in front of a priest like we pretend we believe in God. Just going through the motions. Why? Do you believe in any of it? No. It's just cultural. It's what we do. You know people like this. Maybe you once were someone like this. It's just what we do. When you have a baby, I guess we get it baptized or christened or whatever. Do you believe in any of that? No, but it's just what grandma wants, so we'll just do it. You know people like this? I'm not judging them. I'm just saying they exist. Maybe once you were like that. Maybe you're like that now. I don't know. I don't know your deal. I don't know your story. So you had people like that back then. You have people like that now. You also had a group of people, and they got a name. You also have a group of people fondly referred to in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John as the sinners. Now, that's a term that you can use in a very broad sense, but specifically then, when you see that term appear in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're talking about Jews who had given up on the whole thing. Jews who had said, I'm looking at a religious system, and it doesn't add up. I'm looking at the temple system, and it doesn't add up. I'm going into the temple, and I see people selling stuff, and they're ripping me off. I'm going to the temple, and I'm hearing what the priest has to say, and I'm listening to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and I can tell they've been influenced by Rome. I'm going to the temple, and they're talking about a God that I haven't heard from in 400 years. I'm going to the, to, the, uh, to the synagogues, and I'm learning from the rabbis, and they're telling me stories that happened way back in the day, generations ago, and I'm not even sure if I believe them. And so you know what? I'm done. Jews that were Jews by their ethnicity, but they completely walked away from their faith system saying, I'm done. This doesn't add up. This doesn't make sense. This whole thing is corrupt. This is not relevant. I'm a modern-day person. I don't need this. I'm out. Let me tell you something about this group of people. I love them. I love them. I love them. 
And we've got people like that, right? Maybe that describes you, where you've looked at what's going on and the different religious systems that we have here in our community, and you said, listen, this doesn't add up to me. This doesn't seem relevant. I'm done. I get it. I get it. Maybe that was you at one point in time. Maybe that's you right now. I get it. People who said, I'm, I'm just going to walk away from all this because it's too messy. It's too confusing. It's too corrupt. I don't trust any of it. I love people like that. Love them. But here's what I want to say to them. You can, this is it, you can walk away from all of that without walking away from God. You can walk away from all the mess and the corruption and the nonsense and the irrelevance. You can walk away from all of that but not walk away from God. And so here's what we have now. People just like that, right, don't we? You know people like this. And, and, and I think you need to love them. We need to love people like that and respect where they're coming from, right? I totally respect that perspective. But then you had this fourth category, right? This fourth category, different group of people. I don't know what we could call them. Maybe we'll call them the seekers, okay? Fourth category of people. People who looked at the religious structure and said something's not right here. People who looked at what was going on and saw the Roman corruption and saw the Roman influence and how they lived out their lives said this isn't right. And they walked away. They walked away from their religion in pursuit of God. They walked away from their religion in pursuit of God. In fact, there was a group of people—excuse <clears throat> me—a group of people called the Essenes. And this is what they did: they saw what was up, they saw the corruption, and they walked away. And they kind of rejected a lot of the comforts of modern life. Yeah, they had comforts back then, not like we do. And they went out <clears throat> and they lived in the wilderness, and they lived off wild honey and locusts, right? And they devoted themselves to seeking after God. And they wrote, and they talked a lot about light and darkness and clarity and confusion and illumination and these things. And the reason that I mention this group of people is that John the Baptist may have been a leader among that tribe of people, among that group of people, the Essenes. It seems that way. In fact, John the Baptist, he had a disciple whose name was also John, John and John. So John the leader, John the disciple. And so that John would later become a disciple of Jesus. So too many Johns. It's, it's confusing. Have I confused you all? Then my work is done. Great. But you had this group of people who were devoted. They gave up their religion in pursuit of God. They walked away from their religion in pursuit of God. And they separated themselves off, and they were looking after God. Do we have people like that nowadays in our culture? Do we have anybody like that? Would it be too arrogant if I said I think we're like that? Maybe it would be arrogant if we said, well, that's us, isn't it? Isn't that us? Maybe that is arrogant. Maybe it's also true. I don't know. I think it represents, I mean, that's what, isn't, that, isn't that why you're here? It's like, I'm done with that, but I still want to seek after God. So there are people like that who live in this community. There are. And when I meet people like that, I have hope. <laughs> when I see people like that, I have hope. And I think so many of you fall into that category still seeking after God, or realizing that some kind of system is broken, but still seeking after God. And so John the baptizer, John the Baptist was one of those guys pursuing God. Now, this is interesting, a little interesting dynamic. You know, John's dad was a priest, and so I can only imagine the family fights that took place there. Your dad's a priest, and you were kind of in the line, and he could, John the Baptist could have been a priest too, and John's like, you know what, Dad, I'm going to reject all of what you're about, and I'm going to go live in the wilderness. What a proud father, right? What a dynamic. But then John hits the scene, 
And he brings, again, what's his deal? He's the opening act for Jesus. He's preparing people for Jesus. There's a big change coming. He's going to try to soften the blow a little bit here. And so John enters into the world, and what message does he bring? He comes bringing something entirely new to the people. I'm going to read from, I'm going to read from the Bible. Does that sound like a good idea? From the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is one verse that explains something so new, so radical. A baptism, a baptism, it's a washing ritual, a washing ceremony. Baptism predates John the Baptist. This is already a thing. Back back in the days in the Jewish culture, if someone was a Gentile, they wanted to become a Jew, they went through all, all kinds of rigmarole, and one of the processes they went through is they went through this washing ritual at the temple. There was a washing ritual a person would go through to be made clean and say, okay, now you're a Jew. And so John is, is taking baptism and putting a whole new spin on it. You didn't do this out in the river, you did it at the temple. He's saying, I'm going to do a baptism. What kind of baptism? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, a new concept for the people. Saying, John, what? I thought in order to be forgiven for my sins, didn't God say I had to go get an animal, go get a lamb and bring that lamb and have that lamb slain in front of me and watch the bloodshed and all that? And John's saying, yeah, that was then. But this is what God is saying now. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, John came with a message that made sense. He was saying to the people, again, he was talking to all different kinds of people. I don't know exactly who came out to hear John speak. I mean, did any of the people who were devoted to their religion come out and hear John? Probably. They probably came out to call him a cult leader or something like that, right? But some of those people who were going through the motions, they heard what John was about, and they probably came out. And some of the people, I think a lot of the people who were in that sinner's category who had given up on their faith came out to hear John because what he was saying made sense. He was saying, listen, guys, what God values is in your heart. What God values is true repentance. If you're just going through the motions and having an animal slain on your behalf, what good is that to God? God values true repentance. And if there's true repentance, that's where there's forgiveness of sins. Not going through the motions, but true repentance. Isn't that what you value? If you were God, wouldn't you value that? I mean, if you were you, isn't that what you value? If someone comes to you and they've wronged you, don't you want true repentance as opposed to sorry, and then they do it again, sorry, and then they do it again, sorry, and then they do it again, right? Isn't that what you would want? True repentance, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Here is a man given a message by God, sharing truth with people. And guess what happened as a consequence of that? A few people came out and heard what he had to say. Now, much more than that. The whole, verse 5, Mark 1, verse 5, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Of course they did. Like this guy, finally, someone who's going to tell us the truth about God. Finally, someone who has the heart of God. And they went out. And instead of sacrificing animals and instead of going through some kind of ritual rigmarole, they confessed their sins before God. And they said, I don't want to be like this anymore. I don't want to do these things anymore. I don't want to be the person who, who does these things against God anymore. They expressed their hearts. They were baptized. They went through this washing ritual, which was just an outward expression of what was going on inward. And they received from God that forgiveness of sins. That's John the Baptist preparing the way. And so this is going on. 
And the religious establishment finds out about it. And how do you think that they felt about it? <laughs> they found out, like, oh, what's this guy doing? Who is this guy? You know the high priest? I think it's his son. It's his son? No, I can't be right. Who is this guy and what is he doing? What's he about? Does he think he's some kind of Messiah or something? Let's go find out what he's about. And that's exactly what they do. And so they send some people out, the religious establishment, they send some people out, said, we've got to find out what John is about, because everybody's going out to hear him preach, and people are kind of walking away from what we're about, and they're going out to him. They're walking away from our system, and they're going out to him. Let's find out what he's about. So I'm in Matthew, book of Matthew, chapter 3. And so they're coming down to him. And I can only imagine, there's a lot of things that the Bible doesn't tell us. I can only imagine that what these priests wanted to do is they wanted to wait for a minute and say, okay, we're going to let him finish his little sermon. Then we're going to try to take him over to the side and say, hey, John, uh, what's your story? What are you about? Um, do you want to come with us? Maybe you can like, speak to the rest of the temple, maybe the rest of the Sanhedrin. You can kind of tell us about yourself and we can get a sense of whether or not you're legit. Can we do that? Can we have a little chat, John? Maybe that's what they wanted to do. But that's not what happens. And so they're on their way out, and John's in the middle of his speech or whatever it is. He's giving his sermon. They're on their way out. Before they can get close, before they can get close enough to have a little conversation, here's what John does. Chapter 3 of Matthew, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers! That's not how you make friends, John. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? There's wrath coming. There is a wrath coming. And those who misrepresent God will face that wrath. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? And here's what he says, verse 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. My goodness gracious. And what is he preaches to them? He preaches to them. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Live it. If you repent of your sins, live it. Let me see the fruit. Jesus would come, and, would come and say the same kind of thing. You want to judge a tree? Look at its fruit. If you want to see if a person is living the right way, look at the fruit of their life. If you want to know if you can trust a person's message, if it's from God, look at the fruit. And he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That did not go the way that the Pharisees and Sadducees wanted it to go. He preached at them. He called them out. Can you imagine what the sinners in the crowd thought? Ooh, he's calling them out. Yeah, he's calling them out, you know? John was a man of the people. He was for the people. And so that's what happens then. And then, and then Jesus comes along. And then Jesus enters the scene. Now, John and Jesus, here's what we know about them. They were relatives some way. Jesus' mother, Mary, and John's mother, Elizabeth, they were relatives. And so John and Jesus, did they know each other as kids? Maybe. Did they get together at family functions, over barbecues and picnics? I don't know, maybe. Did they spend Memorial Day weekend together? I don't know, right? They may have known each other. But here's what we know. John did not know Jesus was the Messiah. John did not know Jesus was the Son of God. So if he knew him beforehand, he just knew him as Jesus. You know, this is my cousin Jesus, whatever. You know what I mean? That's what he knew. And so here's what we have. John preaching, he's called out the, the Pharisees, he's called out the Sadducees. Sadducees, people are flocking to him because he's speaking the truth, they want to hear what he's about, they want to hear more about God, and Jesus is a face in the crowd. Jesus is one of those people assembled to hear John. And here's where all of our movies have failed us, right? Because in all the movies, what do you see? The long white robe and the blue sash and the blue, why does he have blue eyes? Why does she have blue eyes? It doesn't make sense culturally, Right? 
And he's always handsome, right? When we see Jesus in the movies, he's always a looker, right? He's like, this whole Messiah thing doesn't work out. I can become a male model, right? No. Isaiah says there's nothing in his appearance that would draw us to him. This is literally, this is literally a face in the crowd. Okay, look around this room. I'm going to look like Jesus. It's just a face. It's just a face in the crowd, and he's there. And he comes up to be baptized. And in that moment, God reveals to John, hey, you know that guy you've been waiting for? You know the Messiah you've been talking about? This is him. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And John's not a man who's shy with his words, right? He's a big, bold guy, but I feel like he was thrown off here. John tried to deter him, saying, I, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And so Jesus is baptized by John. There's confirmation that this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. And can you, uh, can you imagine this moment? We've never experienced anything like this. This was John's life. His life was dedicated to preparing people for the Messiah. And he's finally, he's finally face-to-face with them. It's like, this, this, the day is here. He's baptized. Okay, now what, <laughs> right? He's here. Now what? And that's a question of now what? What happens next? I guess Jesus, John's like, okay, I guess I'll, I'll step aside and take the floor, I guess. I mean, I guess you start preaching to the people now, right? Isn't that what should happen? But that didn't happen. Jesus is baptized, and then he just walks away. He's like, what? What? Oh, my goodness. This is amazing. Jesus, don't you love Jesus? The stuff that he does is so brilliant. It's so counterintuitive, but yet it makes perfect sense if that could be. He, you know, the Messiah, if this guy's the Messiah, why does he just go to the temple and say, hey, I'm here. Okay, well, let's test you out and, the, and let the Pharisees and the priests, you know, let them test Jesus. No, he doesn't do that. He shows up, not among the religious establishment. He shows up among the people, among the sinners, and he's baptized with them, and then he just walks away. What? And we'll see what happens to him next week. We'll pick up there. But that's, that's a remarkable thing. Goodness gracious, this moment in time where John finally gets to say, this is him. The question that I have for us to consider is why? Why did the religious establishment push back so hard against what Jesus was about? Why did they resist so much what John was preaching about, this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? I'll tell you why. Take a look in your bulletin. Because doesn't this sound wonderful, by the way? I mean, imagine you've got these priests, you've got these Pharisees, you've got the religious establishment, and finally the Messiah is here. Shouldn't they be celebrating this? Shouldn't they be excited about this? Why do they resist so much? And so Jesus has been baptized, and there he is walking past. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and what does he say? Look! Some translations of the Bible says, behold. I kind of like behold better. That's more dramatic. It looks like, hey, look. Behold! I like behold more. Behold! And what does he say when he points to Jesus? Look! The Messiah! Does he say that? Look! The Savior! Does he say that? What does he say? What does he call him? Look! The Lamb! The Lamb! Everybody there knew what a lamb was about. Lamb is a sacrificial offering that you present in the temple. 
Lamb, you have a lamb slaughtered in order to be forgiven of sins. That's how that worked. Everybody knew what he meant. Lamb. Whose lamb? Lamb of God. God doesn't need a lamb. God doesn't need a lamb. God doesn't need a sacrifice. God is sinless. God is God. He doesn't need to present a sacrifice to himself. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the Jews. No. No. Who takes away the sins of the world. Guys, this just got way bigger than anyone was anticipating. Are you telling me this is bigger than just us, the Jews? And how tough that is to embrace. How difficult that was for them to embrace. Because you realize what this means? Jesus, the Lamb of God, a sacrificial Lamb that will take away the sins not only of the Jews, but also the sins of the Samaritans, that half-breed of people where they had this institutionalized racism against the Samaritans? Are you telling me that, that the Lamb of God, that God's sacrificial Lamb is going to take away their sins? What about the Romans? You know, the people who oppress us and tax us and take our daughters into slavery when we can't pay their taxes. You're going to tell me that God is going to forgive their sins too? Yes. It's a whole new radical departure from the old way. He's come to forgive the sins of the world. And why? Why was there such pushback? You know, this whole series, it's in your bulletin. I, I, I should have mentioned this already, but this is all based on a series done by North Point Church where Andy Stanley's the senior pastor. And Andy Stanley made this observation, okay? And this is a rhyme. It's total Andy Stanley. Ready, ready for this, note takers? He says this. Those who benefit most from the status quo are least inclined to let it go. Though, isn't that, that's Andy Stanley all over, isn't it? Those who benefit most from the status quo are least inclined to let it go. In order for the Sanhedrin, in order for the priests and the scribes to embrace this radical new change, do you realize what that would mean? They'd have to sacrifice. They'd have to give up their position because you don't need a priest anymore. They'd have to give up their power and their control over the people. They'd have to give it up. They'd have to sacrifice that. Let's make this, let's, let's get real. They'd have to give up their jobs. We don't need you guys anymore. You're part of the old way. You're out of a job, bub. If this is true, you're out of the job. It will require such a tremendous sacrifice on their part because those who benefit most from the status quo are least inclined to let it go, even if letting it go means accepting a wonderful new change. That's just how it is. That's why they push back so hard against the message of Jesus. Let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, before Hope Community Church, I was working at some other church, and <clears throat> I was on staff there. They brought me on to work with children's stuff and working with small groups, and so they gave me the title pastor, which nobody asked for, but it just happened, whatever. I accepted it. So they called me Pastor Josh, and that was weird at first. Anyway, I got myself invited. It was kind of like a side door invitation. I got myself invited to this group of pastors that was meeting in the Westchester area. And I don't think I was even supposed to be there because I wasn't a real pastor. I mean, most people didn't consider me a real pastor then. Most people don't consider me a real pastor now, and that's fine. I'm fine being a fake pastor. That's, that's all good. And so anyway, I go into this meeting, and it was, it was wonderful. It was, I mean, it was, it was life-changing. We went through a series of videos. Um, the teacher on the video series was a man named Dwight Smith. And what he did through this video series is he put a question out there to all pastors. And he said, here's the question. What does God want? That's the question. What does God want? 
specifically? What does God want more than anything else? Now, if you go to the Bible with that question, it's not tough to find an answer because what God wants more than anything else is he wants to redeem his people. He wants to save us. He wants to reconcile our relationship between us and him. That's what God wants more than anything else. And so the point of this whole series that I went through with this group of pastors is to say, listen, we have to give God what he wants, and we have to orient everything we do as a church around what God wants, what God wants to see accomplished, because God is on a mission in this world. He is pursuing us, and we need to be about that more than anything else. That's the only thing we need to focus on, is giving God what he wants. And I'm watching this series, and even now I got Goosebumps, first row, confirm. Goosebumps, just telling you this. Because when I learned this, I felt this is the missing piece of my understanding about what church is supposed to be. Because churches can become all kinds of things, can't they? We can become oriented around just being a Christian club. And let's, the, the pastors and the leaders, we're just going to cater to the desires of Christians, right? What do our Christians want? They want a program about this? Well, let's give them that. What do the Christians want? Well, we'll give them that. We can just start catering to Christians. That's not what church is supposed to be. We're supposed to be giving God what he wants, and he wants an opportunity to communicate with the lost, with seekers, with sinners. That's what he wants more than anything else. And so I'm watching these videos, and I'm thinking to myself, what would it look like if all the pastors in this room sitting around, you know, in a dark room watching this video, what would it look like if we all gave God what he wanted? And so one of these sessions, the video was over, we're having some conversation. I usually didn't say much in those meetings because I was a young guy. I was in my 20s, and it was like, I'll just be quiet, let the adults talk. So they're all talking, but there was a lull in the conversation. And during that lull, I threw out some questions. Okay, I was like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be bold. I'm going to speak. Maybe I shouldn't, but I'm going to do it anyway. Throw out some questions. And I said, what are we willing to sacrifice to give God what he wants? Are we willing to see some of our churches close? Are we willing to give up our paychecks? I asked those questions. And after I asked those questions, the room fell silent for several minutes. And then finally, the leader of the group spoke up, and he said to me, young man, where did you acquire such wisdom, and how did you get so handsome? <laughs> I almost had you there, right? No, I asked the questions, and nobody listened to me, and the conversation went out. I mean, goodness gracious, we were a group of pastors. We weren't there to listen to each other. We were there to preach at each other, right? But I threw those questions out there, and I still wonder, what, what would it look like if we actually, if we had enough churches and church leaders and pastors and people and hired staff and churches, what if we were willing to sacrifice everything and anything in order to give God what He wants? What if we could do that? And it was an easy question for me to ask, because these, and here's why I ask those questions, because I do see these parallels between the world of today and the world of John the Baptist and the world of Jesus. And this is just the sad reality, and I'm not exactly sure of a polite way to put this, but we have too many churches in our country, in our community, where you've got the religious establishment, and they just don't want to let go of their power. They don't want to let go of their churches. They want, don't want to let go of their denominational affiliation. Even if there is rampant corruption, they don't want to let go because it would mean sacrifice. It would mean giving up. I mean, what if, and I would love, wouldn't this be fun to do? What if we could flip a switch on this board and they could just pipe this into every church meeting in Delco? Wouldn't that be fun? And I could just ask them those questions. Church leaders, what are you willing to sacrifice to give God what he wants? That would be fun. I love to ask that question, and I do. Anytime I get a chance to talk to a pastor, I bring this up, right? 
I would love to ask that question of all the pastors in this area, all the priests in this area, all the church staff in this area, but guess what? It's not my place, really. It's not my place. So I guess I'll just ask you. What are you willing to sacrifice in order to give God what He wants? Are you willing to sacrifice in order to give God what He wants? Would you give up? Would you give up your job? Would you give up your comfort? What are you willing to sacrifice in order to give God what He wants? Here's what I know about you. So many of you in this room have been willing to sacrifice so much just to be a part of this little church here. So many of you have demonstrated to God that you are willing to sacrifice to be a part of what He's doing through this church. So many of you have walked away from other churches, you know, churches that had the whole thing figured out, right? Churches that had the building and the programming and the music with the lights and the fog machines and all that stuff and the, and the Wednesday night stuff and the Saturday mornings, you know, the whole thing, the whole package, right? And the awesome child care venues and the slides and all that. You've walked away from that. You've sacrificed it all to be a part of this. Thank you. You know how encouraging that is? So many of you have walked away. You've walked away from church settings where it's just like you had so much history in those churches and your parents were there and your great-grandparents and their you know, parents before that. And you just have all this history tied and all this tradition and you walked away from all that tradition. And by the way, the people back there at your old church, they think you're crazy for doing it. And you walked away from that so that you could be a part of this. You have sacrificed already. And so many of you in this room, some of you in this room, have walked away from your friends because you're the only one in your group of friends seeking after God, but you're seeking, and maybe they all think you're crazy, but you've come out here to this space, this weird theater in Ridley Park that most of you didn't even know existed before you showed up here, right? You came out here, you've sacrificed in order to be a part of this. Here's what we need to be about as a church. We need to give God what He wants. That needs to be our first priority. That needs to be maybe our only priority. We need to give God what he wants. He wants an opportunity to redeem the lost. We need to give it to him. That needs to be our number one priority. And here's what we need to do. We need to be willing to sacrifice in order to give God what he wants. We need to be willing to do whatever it takes to give God what he wants. We need to be willing to sacrifice to give God an opportunity to redeem the lost right here. What does that look like in your life? Maybe that means you need to sacrifice some of your comfort. Maybe you need to have that awkward conversation with somebody. Maybe you need to actually sit down and explain the gospel to somebody. It's like, okay, we've been friends for a while. I've been trying to work my influence here, but let me, just, let me tell you about Jesus. Maybe you need to do that. That's what we need to be about. We need to be willing to sacrifice whatever it takes in order to give Jesus what he wants. Let's pray on that. Lord Jesus Christ, you've sacrificed so much, so much for us. You've given us everything. Jesus, you left your, your position in heaven. You came down to this earth. You were born in humble circumstances, to say the least. You endured ridicule. You, you endured persecution. You endured physical torture. You endured death and a cross all for us. You have sacrificed so greatly on our behalf. And Father God, you gave up the life of your one and only Son for us. So God, allow us to be a people who are willing to sacrifice for your sake. 
Allow us to be a people who are willing to do whatever it takes to share the gospel with this community. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.